0: that's what that's the current theory that people operate under but actually there's uh not a new it's been around for the last hundred years uh but uh, a theory called the mitochondrial metabolic theory of cancer which is now gaining a lot more um uh what shall we say substance because there's a lot of research being done
1: hi guys and welcome back to another episode of the meek medic podcast now today i've got returning guest dr nilam Priya today so thank you nilam for joining us today
0: thanks Suresh. thank you for having me on
1: oh you're very welcome anytime you're always welcome now dr nilam has a really um important story that she wants to share with us this evening um it's very very close to her heart and it's going to be a i think a really interesting discussion this evening so dr nilam over to you to give us your story
0: thank you Suresh yes so I um, the last two months um, have been really um, very difficult because um, my brother um, was diagnosed um, at the at the beginning of um, December with a stage 4 lung cancer um with metastases or spread to his brain multiple metastases and i think they counted in number 15 metastases to his brain um and um and this was uh, and then when they looked for the primary it was in his lungs um now he, he has never smoked. He's a very active, he was a very active man, uh, you know, mountain biking, skiing. He lives in the U.S., um, hiking, swimming. That's what he loved to do. and That's what he did whenever there was good weather over there. And, um, and, and this came as a shock. This is, there was no history of any of this in our family. And, and it only presented, the symptoms started two weeks Prior to his diagnosis, he started getting dizzy. And those were the only symptoms, and dizzy and uh, also kind of like a little bit of blurred vision. And coming from a, a kind of a Sri Lankan background, well, the family were convinced that, um, that this was uh, that he was having a stroke. And um, when we when the the scans, the MRI scans revealed that he had these metastases, that was a, a massive shock. Um, so anyway, he and and because of so many of these lesions in the brain, um, he had a there was a lot of intracranial uh, um, pressure. So the skull um, is a fixed structure. So when there's a lot of what we call space occupying lesions in there, that just increases the pressure within the skull. So that then um, is is a really concerning. Uh, Problem and partic- he also had what we call midline shift. So his the the pressure had increased so much that it had shifted some of his brain to one side, and this was a real concern. And uh, because this could be life threatening, so he was started on high dose steroid. He was there was one particular lesion that was very very large. So uh, the surgeons, um, the the neurosurgeons were planning to remove this lesion but until then they started him on hydro steroids um, that suppress and keep the inflammation under control and uh, he had the surgery he had a craniotomy and he did really well there was no issue with that um and um and so and then um when they did the genetic profiling of his lung cancer they found that he was one of um i think one percent of people who get lung cancer, who have this particular mutation that is really amenable to uh, a type of immunotherapy called tyrosine kinase inhibitors. And that really changed his prognosis. Um, And the oncologists were very happy uh, and being able to give him a much better prognosis because initially when he was diagnosed he was you know stage four lung cancer with multiple metastases to the brain we're talking we're not talking long but with this um this mutation um he was given um you know, he was told that he could easily live for five to 10 years, possibly longer. He would have to take exactly. the medication lifelong. And so it was it, it was such a big, it, I mean, the whole family, we were just, it was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was wonderful. But this was just before Christmas. And therefore, and because we were, this is all in the U.S., everything has to be approved through the insurance companies. So these medications, it took time to come through, um, and um, and um, so he'd had his craniotomy. He was on his um, he, he was on the high dose steroid for his to keep the inflammation down, but there was really nothing to actually um, stop the growth of his cancer. And uh, two weeks after his craniotomy, the the steroids were being tapered down uh, because there was less pressure, because the the largest lesion was removed. And then he started getting these um, double vision and all those symptoms again. And when a repeat MRI scan showed that his lesions not only had they increased in size, uh, they had multiplied as well. And that was, I mean, it was just... Yeah, it was a, such a shock because in such a short period of time. Um, and so he was recommenced on this high-dose steroid. And at that point, so this was literally just before Christmas. And um, at that point, I decided that I needed to go and see him. Uh, my sister, uh, so my sister and I, well, obviously, I'm a GP. My sister is a radiologist. So uh, and uh, so she, had, she was there... Um, in the initial bit and then i went over and really we had talked to him my brother about starting on a, a ketogenic diet now my brother is an engineer he's not really very fait with any medical stuff but he was really he, he was he really wanted to do whatever he could to um to improve his health and his his um, possibility of survival and improve his his likelihood of survival, so he was he was really keen to start on a ketogenic diet, and we'll talk about that, Suresh, why that was, and um, and, and uh, he was doing really well with that, and um, and also I wanted to introduce him to fasting. So when I went, um, I left on Boxing Day, and that was what that was the idea, and. So when I got there, I realized that um, he slept very little. He was sleeping two hours, um, and when I initially got there, he was a bit tired, as you would expect. He was, um, you know, he he needed to sleep in the in the afternoons to catch up. Um, but uh, he said that the the keto, the keto diet was really giving him a lot of energy. And as the days went on, he had amazing energy. I mean, he was from 2 o'clock in the morning till midnight, he was on the go. He was on the go. And what he was doing, because he had given this uh, improved prognosis, he wanted to do everything that he had he wanted to do you know and he had this list of stuff particularly he loved his house he he and his wife built his house 10 years ago and and there were always things that he hadn't quite managed to finish so that was the big thing he was going to uh, finish and like to the to the highest possible standard his house so there were designers coming in there was furniture being delivered there was expensive like there was so much going on in the house when i got there and then holidays he's a real traveler and his 25th anniversary was coming up so he was planning all these holidays so i realized that you know a few days when i, I after i got there that yes, he was on the keto diet, and he was reasonably on that, but he was really distracted. There was so much going on. There were bicycles and, um, you know, multiple appliances, and Amazon was, there was packages coming morning, noon, and night. And the whole household was in an uproar. And um, and then as, as this went on, I realized that... Um, There was a, there was not, something didn't seem right. My brother was always a quiet man. He, he didn't talk much. You know, he, he kept to himself and it. you know, he, he, he wasn't some, you know, he wasn't like me. I talk a lot, but that wasn't him. But, um, and I realized that my mom mentioned something. She said, you know, he, he talks a lot. Then I realized that from the moment we got up in the morning till the moment we went to bed, you could hear his his voice kind of talking, droning on the whole day, you know, different cadences. But, and, and, um, and then he was getting a bit irritable. He was getting, um, he would go. So there was a lot of money being spent. And every morning when we got up, spending money. And if you asked him, like, what are you doing? Like, you know why are you spending all this money? He would get really upset, and then as time, and then also get a, a little bit teary and get very emotional. And that again wasn't my brother. And then I realized that this was an acute manic episode. That's what we were witnessing, um, yeah. and um, and uh, it, it it took a few days for it to because you know you don't. Kind of expect that, and there was never a history of that in the family, or he's never exper- experienced this. And um, I mean, it could have been one of many things that triggered that he was, you know, very poor sleep. He was on very high doses of dexamethasone for his uh, his uh, metastases in the brain. He also had multiple metastases in his brain that that particularly in the in the frontal lobe, which could also be triggering this. Mm. Um, But really, the only thing that we could do was, in my mind, was to maybe start reducing the dose of steroid. But I mean, I couldn't do that. I'm not a straight clinician. So then trying to get him seen by somebody, uh, trying to get... A mental health perspective, or a review, or trying to get um, you know some kind of management of his mental health, because he was also then by then now getting a bit aggressive as well. So he'd go from being very happy and laughing and these, as you know, Suresh, these grandiose ideas of I'm going to beat this cancer, I'm going to write a book, I'm going to make a million dollars, you know, all of this, and then the next moment. Very kind of um, angry and uh, aggressive, verbally aggressive, and it was very stressful for the family. My parents, my elderly mm-hmm. parents, were also in the house because they'd come to um, help the family. Uh, my my his wife and his two kids were there, uh, and including myself. So it was a very kind of stressful period of time. Um, and it was really hard to get any sort of um, treatment for this and, um, you know, sy- system difficulties, really. Um, trying to, in the US, in the state he lives in anyway, there was no way that we could email. There is no email for any specialists or any GPs. You had to call them or you had to physically go and see them. And, you um, I mean, it was you and I know how difficult it is to call a doctor in the middle of a busy day. Um, So and and so what uh, you know I had to do was and obviously I tried to speak to my brother about these these symptoms, but he wouldn't have anything. He felt Mm. amazing. This was the best he'd felt. He felt he had this amazing brain power. Why would he like? You know, there was nothing wrong with him. Um, Yes. you know and uh, so then i you know i had to be very very careful about how i did this so i um i wrote multiple letters and one morning i just got an uber went to the hospital and and went and met all well went to the specialist the spe- specialist his radiation oncologist and his oncologist and um you can't really speak to them, but I gave the letters to the, um, to the admin people and said, these, this is so important. This needs to be addressed. And eventually, um, his oncologist got in touch with me. Um, but, um, and, and then finally his, um, yeah, well, no. So, so then there was this whole discussion of, well, what do you want us to do? And, um, so I said, he needs to be in hospital because he is, he's a risk to himself. He's a risk, I felt, um, to the family at that point. And also, what I was suggesting was that we reduce the, the dose of the steroid um, under their guidance. But then there's also, Suresh, the concern about the fact that um, the steroid was the only thing that was holding his um, his his brain, you know, the pressure. So by mm-hmm. reducing steroid you know he he his uh, metastases just went crazy to you know within two weeks what would happen so I really felt that he needed to be in hospital Um, and uh, there was so it was an interesting conversation because um, so as soon as I said I think there's a risk issue here then uh, the oncologist said well then you need to get you need to call an ambulance and get him into hospital. And, um, and you know, I realized that sometimes, you know, I would say that to my patients here in Australia. And I realized that, that you know, that you, it is not, you cannot just get somebody into hospital if if they are in this scenario. It's, it's very, very difficult. So this, anyway, this went on for a few days. Um, we didn't get him admitted at that point, but then he developed acute urinary retention on top of that which is the inability as you know to to pass urine um, and his bladder was actually up to his umbilicus and that was that's a surgical emergency u- urological emergency he had to be ad- admitted to hospital and um, so that at that op- point I decided well I really tried to kind of um speak to the emergency doctors now about you know his mental health state again it was quite difficult but eventually eventually we got him admitted and got him seen by psychiatrists and finally his uh steroid doses were reduced uh, tapered and he was commenced on uh, medication to help him sleep and also medication to reduce his agitation and um and so, then, within a few days, um, well, it took about a week or so for these manic manic symptoms to settle down. It was it was very very distressing that whole period of time. Um, and in the meantime, he had actually the 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 immunotherapy that he was supposed to have started came through, and he had already started that. So it, this is um, a specific. Um, it, it targets this particular lung cancer, uh, This well, this mutation in this particular lung cancer, and, and it does actually have a, 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 it gives a pretty good prognosis, uh, but it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. So, and there wow. are, yes, yeah, so interestingly, um, there are these uh, immunotherapies that cross the blood-brain barrier. So when we ask, well, why would we start on something that, doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier when there are ones that do, but it's the standard of care in the US. The standard of care uh, states that this is the way we do things for this cancer. And I think from my understanding of it is that it is governed by um, also the insurance companies as well and what they pay for. So there's not a lot of... um, uh, there's not a lot of opportunity, I think, for clinicians to to just say, okay, well, in this case, we'll do this. I think he had to go through these various options, um, and so you know, he's so then at that point, I'd been in the U.S. for three weeks. You know, I had to get back to my patients and my life at, at home and I was happy that he was in hospital, his manic symptoms were settled, he was starting radiotherapy for his brain as well because one of the uh, lesions was in his brain stem and uh, that lesion had grown and lesions in the brain stem are very dangerous because it can cause... Um, well, it can cause seizures. It can cause herniation of the brain. So the, his radiation oncologist wanted him to start on radiation, whole brain radiation, which wasn't ideal. But well, that was that was what was offered at the time. But then, then he started to become breathless, um, and um, and he needed oxygen, and. Um, Again, that was really, you know, he would never had problems with any of this. Um, and then it turned out that, well, um, um, you know, blood testing revealed that he had that, and, and uh, imaging revealed that he had what they thought was a pneumonia. And they then treated him with oral um, IV antibiotics, but nothing worked. And he was actually getting worse after a week. And we couldn't understand well, what was going on with him. Then we realized that the medication that he he was started on for his cancer treatment, um, uh, a a small percentage of patients, less than 2% get um, this interstitial uh, inflammatory, it's an inflammatory lung condition called interstitial lung disease or pneumonitis, which if you get it, there's a 50% chance of death. And um, and we, I, I mean, I, I I just knew that that was what was happening, and um, and then he just, you know, f- within a few days, his he he just couldn't breathe. He he was getting exhausted uh, by having to try and breathe through this, and the treatment for this was high dose steroid, but because they had to treat this. Potential pneumonia. First, Um, I think by the time they started him on the high dose steroid, it was too late. Um, I mean, it wasn't an oversight in any way because they had to make sure that they were treating any infective pathology. But um, and what happened was that he he was getting so exhausted that they then had to uh, send him into ICU put him on a ventilator for mechanical ventilation and um, and at that point our whole family came back because we just yeah anyway and and uh, you know he um, three days later he passed away because he um, he um, he couldn't he couldn't breathe by himself and there was the hydrosteroid the mechanical ventilation it didn't make any difference in fact his he, he deteriorated further and, and there was there was no possibility that he could manage to breathe by himself so Suresh two months following his diagnosis were well, less than two months he died of interstitial lung disease um, secondary to uh, the immunotherapy that he was started on and the other the previous uh, You know, very distressing uh, manic episode was also secondary to the steroids that he was started on. So, yeah, it was um, a very yeah harrowing journey. Um, But but uh, you know, it really opened my eyes as to he we are a medical family, and this was a complex case. Uh, and so i was really grateful that i my sister and i uh, had uh, that understanding and i feel you know what happens to families that don't have that medical support to have gone through something like this i don't know how people would do it so that was a really humbling um sobering thought for me really that uh, I was grateful that I had that knowledge. Um, yeah. so yeah, so that, that's that's my story, that's my brother's story. and I, I felt that I really needed to talk about it because I think there's so much um, that we can learn and there are alternative treatments and you know, at the end of the day that these treatments that are used for cancer therapy, they are also highly toxic. And I, I think sometimes um, when somebody's diagnosed with a stage four cancer, um, they're so desperate and worried and scared that they take, this is the only option that is given. And so therefore that's all they take. But um, I think there are other options that maybe could have been, you know, I, I think that what if, there was something else. Uh, I, I think in my m- brother's case, I don't think he, this would have helped. Anything else would have helped him in terms of survival. But I think maybe the lifestyle therapies that you and I use might have helped um, in terms of comfort, keep him, a, you know, more stress relief, keep him in a more peaceful state in those two two months of his last two months of his life um so
1: yeah 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 i mean i've said it off air but i'll say it on air as well i mean obviously my condolences to to you you and your family and i really appreciate you coming on the show i know you reached out to me and you wanted to share this this story um for my listeners for the viewers because um you want to get the word out that you know, maybe there's other ways of of, of approaching things. Um, I mean, we'll go back and clarify you know, some of those issues, but um, yeah, I mean, that's a very, very powerful story. I'm almost in tears over here um, listening to it. Um, it's a very, very sad story, but close to my heart, my father died from interstitial lung disease as well uh which not a lot of people know i'm not keeping i don't keep it a secret it just it doesn't come out of conversation very no, that's right.
0: awesome. um
1: and it's a it's a it's a truly horrible condition um people think things like dementia are, are bad and they are of course they're terrible they're disastrous um interst- interstitial lung disease i feel like is it's, it's in a whole other level um i think the best way you can you can describe it or i could describe it to someone is what it's always been described to me in my experience with my father was um his was slow but yeah basically just just drowning without yeah. water exactly. um i think is the best way to to put it you know you, you you just feel like you know your lungs are just slowly filling up and and you just you just can't breathe and yeah. uh and my father was a steady decline but yeah by the end of it i mean i'm just grateful every time when i think about him that he he went into hospital and he picked up a cold and and, and passed, away passed away because he yeah. was it just put him out of his misery and and he just had no existence um they never found out what the cause with with him was um i've got my theories uh there was no you know like medications or anything involved with him it was just yeah you know we don't know what the cause is Uh, i suspect it was it was down to things like oxalates and so on i mean he wasn't a vegetarian but coming from an indian background you know had a pretty heavy vegetarian or plant-rich diet Of course i can't prove that but i suspect oxalates they are suspected to be heavily involved with lung fibrosis um so um i I suspect that's what the issue was with him but of course i couldn't prove that had i known then (laughs) what i know now maybe i could have done something probably not but
0: um yeah but i think just to I, i well i don't know i mean there is no harm in trying these things right i mean how how what what do you have to lose
1: no, uh, I mean I say I say yeah. really to myself, I don't think I could have made any difference because if I if I think that I could have made a difference, well, yeah. that would drive me crazy. Well, so you, I, I
0: but you can only know what you know now, right? You didn't exactly, know it yeah. then. Yeah. yeah, yeah exactly I didn't know
1: back then. But um um very, very powerful story. Again, my condolences. Um, I just want to go back and touch on a few things, maybe explain to some of the some of the listeners and viewers, uh, maybe some of the medical yeah. terms that we that we used there. They're probably you know most of my listeners and viewers are very intelligent people i'm sure they 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 know most of that already but um, um, so you, you were speaking a little bit about the blood blood brain barrier um, and that's just so people you know i'm sure they they know um, obviously your brother had had brain metastases and what we're talking about there is essentially for something to treat inside the brain it has to cross into the brain and the brain is is kind of surrounded by this this barrier this shield uh, because generally, it's bad if, like, bacteria and you know viruses and all these kind of things can actually get into the brain. So it has this barrier around it to try and to try and protect it. And some medications can cross that, uh, some can't. And so um, yeah. uh, that's what we're talking about there with the blood-brain barrier. Um, you also mentioned, of course, this this condition called mania, uh, which again I'm, you, you you kind of explained there. But just in case people missed it it's kind of this condition where um, people just get this this over excessive kind of happiness um quite i mean opposite basically in a way to, to to depression um which is obviously a very state you know kind of tends to be very low mood of course um psychomotor retardation so just very kind of slow thought, slow slow behavior and so on mania is very much the other way this very elevated mood abnormally elevated persistently elevated um often get these what you said grandiose ideas that they can just do anything be anything often spending lots of money um very very difficult to when you're talking to them they just they can't stop talking constantly changing their mind on doing you know different different things it's like adhd on on steroids if you excuse me um but uh but can be triggered by by steroids and presumably you you thought that yes, that was actually the steroids that were doing it. When they brought those down, then Synthesis. the mania improved within a week. Yes. Um, so, uh, of course, there were other things to contend with. But then, of course, by the end of it, well, he kind of needed those steroids uh, for the lungs. So um, obviously just very, very challenging, you know, kind of all around. Yeah. It sounds to me like you're not blaming any one particular person.
0: No, there's no blame because at the end of the day, the way he presented, he needed those steroids, he needed, and, you know, there was the, 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 sorry, the, the, the medication induced fibrosis as well, you know, whatever, and I would probably think that if he was told, he wasn't told about that, uh, that was the only thing I would say that he didn't wasn't actually told about any of these two uh, complications. But even if he was and said that less than 2% of people got this he would have thought well that's not going to be me because nobody thinks that they're going to get get it and there wasn't really any other alternative from a uh, from conventional therapy so i think he would have taken it anyway so no there's no blame but it was just really looking at yeah how how we manage cancer how we manage these end stage um you know, kind of cancers, which not just end stage, but just generally cancer itself. And we use these very strong treatments that are not without, well, obviously there are risks because there they can be more toxic than the actual disease itself. Um
1: sometimes and uh, of course we're talking about cancer here but um, there'll be a lot of people listening out there that uh, you know they're on things like essentially chemotherapy for arthritis and yeah. uh, you know methotrexate and all these immune modulators immunotherapies and so on and, and yeah they do have side effects uh very very real side effects and there may be other ways of of treating these kinds of conditions which we're not we're just not particularly good at i mean you and i yeah. of course you know and do yeah. this kind of work you know out there low carb and and you know anti-nutrients and keto diets and all of this stuff which we'll get into um but i think yeah the majority of the physicians um you know i was speaking to someone the other day i won't name them because i haven't got their permission but they kind of just said yeah a lot of doctors they just kind of don't get it yeah it's just the way that they put it and just uh it's just it's not on their radar but of course it sounds like in in the states where your brother was that even if it was they May not have been able to actually do that because yeah. it's not in their protocols. The insurance yeah. won't allow them. And
0: yeah, I mean that's uh, yeah, that's the impression that I got that they they couldn't really de- uh, um, deviate from from their standard of care. Um, yeah. So anyway, yes. So at least I think I think we're a little bit better here. I think we still have the ability to make clinical decisions in Australia um but
1: um but yeah, yeah. so I think right. I think we, we are probably better here with that but um I think that's a really important point though because yeah I mean at what point are our clinicians actually leading the care and at what point are, are actually the financial you know the backers the bankers the insurance companies you know the hospitals at what point are they actually driving this care and and is that then the best care if the clinician is saying well no i want a different drug as you said the one that's actually going to treat my patient perhaps more effectively but then the insurance says no because you know you have to do this this first um which yeah i I I don't don't think that would sit great with me
0: no exactly the other thing Suresh that um was that during the these last months uh, of my brother's life, because he was very much involved in oncology and the hospital, he, his GP wasn't involved. And I, I found not having a GP involved was a, a, a real challenge because there was no one to advocate for him or to oversee his care. And, you know, at the end of the day, i'm his sister i'm not there as his clinician i'm just there to support him and it was very very challenging and um i feel that you know a good gp um is worth their weight in gold in in a situation like this
1: yeah absolutely i mean they can often help to be that go between you know especially someone who knows the system i mean you as a doctor yes but as you said you know you're there really as a family member you don't yeah. want to be taking the role of a of a clinician no. um yeah. you don't have the insurance and you know No exactly, you, don't
0: exactly. Know the
1: system. you know you don't no. know how things work yeah. and so exactly. it shouldn't it shouldn't fall on you then to to be trying to, to to take to make those decisions and to you know take that position there mm. so yeah. um so that, I mean that's a shame it sounds like that the the insurance and this this protocols were were almost hindering you know, perhaps the the treatment that your brother maybe could have could have gotten. Yeah.
0: I mean, I I don't think it would have made a huge difference, Suresh, because I think the other interesting thing was the only thing that I would I suppose. Um, is that my brother he never he didn't have any um allergies to any medication, but he was a highly atopic, highly allergic individual to the extent that every single item of clothing that he owned had to be in these protected uh, uh, clothes bags because he, he otherwise he couldn't he would sneeze kind of kind of constantly there was so so uh, if so when the questions are asked usually it's are you allergic to medication so i wonder if there was just that this this realization that this individual is a very atopic individual and therefore whether they needed to monitor this person a little bit more closely when it came to the 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 um, inflammatory lung disease that was the only point that i would potentially make but that's again i think a good learning point for us as well not to just ask about allergies to medication but generally are you you know do you have allergies um i think is is a good one to ask yeah
1: yeah i think it is i mean that's usually what i what i do i mean i'm sure i'm guilty of of just saying at times you know are you allergic to any medications especially people list, list off a thousand things that they might have a sensitivity to, but, um, you have to do sometimes narrow it down a little bit. (laughs) Um, I know, I think, I think that's a very, very good point. Um, and, uh, I mean, you, you'd kind of mentioned, I think in the, and forgive me if I'm mistaken in this, but I think you mentioned off air when you, when you contacted me, Dr. Nilam, that, um, you were finding it, I think a little bit frustrating that the, uh kind of the oncology team you felt that they weren't really taking the mental health side kind of seriously and it was like well we're we're oncologists we don't we don't kind of deal with that was, was exactly, almost the impression exactly. that I got from from reading what you wrote to me that is
0: exactly I had to call so um truly I must have been the biggest pain in their backside I had to call so many people so because you can't reach the consultant you have to talk to this uh this, this, there there are nurses so um and that's exactly what one of the nurses said she said but, but we're an oncology team I said but but then who 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 is responsible for him like who is responsible for these like how who, how do i get my brother seen by a psychiatrist or what should happen here and um, and it was very difficult so that's when actually the oncologist did eventually call me and it was very interesting her, her what her her question to me was she said to me well, you're a medical family. What would you like me to do? And I said, Well, but we're not his treating team. We are just family. What would you do? And then she said, Well, I would I uh, if if it was me, I would want to get him admitted. I said, Well, that is exactly what I'm yeah, saying. I, I but, admit uh, him and, but
1: yeah, just yeah. But, get but she it, said, well, then she said, Well, then you need or... to get him
0: in. Yeah, I said, Well well, that's the point. Like, how can you get a patient, a person who has acute mania in just like that? It's it's very difficult. So, uh, I mean, it's, it's a very difficult scenario, Suresh. I'm not saying, I mean, I don't think she, there was nothing that she could do. But I I don't know. I just felt that, like, it it was... And I am so grateful that... It sounds awful that he had the acute urinary retention because that got him into hospital. If he didn't have that, I don't know how we would have managed the situation.
1: Yeah. Well, of course, that's then, you know, becomes a medical, non-psychiatric. And so it's like, oh, okay, well, we can treat that. Yeah, get him in in and, you know, and so on. And then, well, now he's here, you know, we'll treat everything, we'll treat the other stuff as well.
0: But even then trying to get him to stop them discharging him once they sorted out the urinary problem was like, no, no, he can't, he, you know, I oh, really? that wasn't, yeah, no, no, that was, it was. And so what the system there is that they, if somebody's admitted under a medical grounds or surgical grounds, um, even if they have a mental health issue, there is they are not under the care of a psychiatrist. So the psychiatrist comes and sees them, but they're, they're just as visiting. So he's not actually under a psychiatrist, under the care of one. So this was like, I mean, he didn't actually leave. He never got to leave the hospital. But my concern was, well, but who is he under? Because eventually when mm. he comes home, he needs to have some uh review or i mean that's what would happen in australia and yeah. in england yeah. even for a short period of time you would be under that specialist until they're happy and that he's stable or whatever and then discharge to the gp or whatever but there was yeah the, that that was yeah so but anyway he yeah. got the treatment he needed but it, it was it was these were concerns um
1: Mm, it was and you just,
0: different.
1: yeah, and you kind of just got the impression that the the whole patient approach was just not no, there. It no, was like we're treating that I disease, was, yes, not exactly not the patient. So we're
0: urology. We're emergency. We're oncology. That's how it was, um, and um, yeah,
1: yeah. And did you did you get a sense? I appreciate maybe difficult for you to know, but did you get a sense that that was the 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 doctors or that was the system?
0: No, I think it was like the that? system. Every single individual, from the paramedic to the uh, the receptionist to the nurse to the doctors, truly they were amazing. Individually, they couldn't have cared enough. I mean they they were just brilliant. Um, but I think they were these constraints that they had to work under. This was the way it was, you know, this is the way it is over there. And then speaking to just, um, you know, speaking to family friends over there you know, during his funeral, that is what came out that it is very much, um, it is very difficult if you have complex uh, problems that kind of, you know, kind of going from... Uh, that cohesiveness is is kind of not um, as good i think
1: yeah um we also touched on or you also touched on ketogenic diet and and that kind of uh just got dropped in and then we kind of moved on So yeah, yeah and that's, that's also right. what you wanted to talk about uh this evening as well um maybe perhaps nilam you can just explain why you mentioned the ketogenic diet i know people out there are going to probably already know listening to this and probably the title of the video and whatever else they're going to get it yeah, but yeah. Uh, maybe just yeah people listening in the car you can explain yeah, why yeah. you mentioned the ketogenic why? diet why
0: okay because the current theory um for cancer management or for the origin of cancer is called the somatic mutation theory which says that most cancers are due to genetic mutations in the dna and these are um, so that's what a lot of um, the the well that's what that's the current theory that people operate under but actually there's uh, not a new it's been around for the last hundred years uh, but uh, a theory called the mitochondrial metabolic theory of cancer which is now gaining a lot more um, uh, what shall we say substance because there's a lot of research being done and and what that says is that in actual fact the 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 it is damage to the mitochondria mitochondria are the powerhouses within this within our cells that produce energy and chronic damage to the mitochondria uh causes them to not be able to produce sufficient energy and that then leads to um, so I'm sorry it's a little bit of a convoluted but I'll get to it um, right. that leads to the cell um, ad- adapting a very primitive um, form of uh, respiration oh sorry primitive form of energy um, production which is called fermentation so yes, yeah, so and And so these um, cells, these cancer cells, so damage happens over time to the mitochondria from a variety of things. So it could be toxins, any kind of carcinogen, environmental toxins, radiation, um, certain medications, um, smoking, obesity, um, you know, inflammation, high glucose. Uh, certain viruses, any of these things. And it happens, it, it's, uh, uh, the, the damage is a gradual damage because if there's acute, um, quick onset damage, the cell dies, the cell can't manage. But damage that happens over time gives the cell the ability to um, adapt And and, um, adapt to survive because now what happens in the mitochondria is that it produces a lot of, a good functioning mitochondria produces a lot of energy. And energy is our currency for survival. And because of the damage to the mitochondria, if it is not able to produce the produce enough ATP, which is our energy currency exactly, um, to survive, then uh, the cell knows that it's going to die. So in an attempt to survive, it it actually uh, adapts this um, fermentation process. So fermentation is a process that generates energy without oxygen. Uh, And the substrate that is used is glucose and glutamine, which is a type of amino acid, and so um, and glucose and glutamine. Um, so, what the the cells use these? They are not very efficient at producing energy. They only produce small amounts of energy compared to mitochondrial respiration. So, so therefore, the cell has to adapt to take huge amounts of this glucose, in particular, to be able to. Um, To be able to survive. So, the idea then is that if you somehow manage to, and these, these, sorry, these cells, uh, these cancer cells are very primitive. They don't have the adaptability that normal cells have. So, if you then stop somehow, stop them getting the substrate, so either, particularly the glucose. Um, then they, they start to get weaker and weaker. And, you know, so that is the idea. So the glucose, easiest way to stop uh, this cancer cell getting glucose is either, uh, well, fasting, water only fasting, but that's not sustainable long term, you can't fast forever, and a ketogenic diet. A, keto, a, a, a proper ketogenic diet, not low carb, you have to have, you have to be in ketosis. So basically, if you're in ketosis, cancer cells are not able to ferment um, or use non-fermentable substrates. So they cannot use fatty acids or ketones as energy. So therefore, by being in ketosis, um, what happens is that you are depriving the cancer cells of their substrate while, while we know the benefits of ketones to the other cells in the body by, while strengthening the rest of the body, uh, rest of the cells. So that is how a ketogenic uh, diet works and fasting um, works um, in this mitochondrial metabolic theory of cancer. And, you know, Uh, It's not only that, you have to then address things like anything that increases uh, glucose, so stress management, sleep management, um, making sure that all of those are really, um, you you know, kind of prioritized, um, making sure that people exercise, particularly muscle building, uh, resistance uh, training, because that increases the survivability in particularly in in these uh, stage four uh, cancer patients who become very hectic or, you know, the the loss of muscle because of the cancer. Um, So all these things, these are all lifestyle factors that, you know, unfortunately, these are not given as an option. And in fact, um, so my brother... Because we had talked to him about it, he knew about these things. And I went to him on on one of the visits to the hospital, and uh, this is the visit that he was given the the, the medication to start. And, um, and my brother asked the nurse uh, about a ketogenic diet, and she actually didn't know what it was. And uh, and I really felt enough. she didn't know, and I felt how how can you how 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 is that possible? If you have this this theory that's coming out, that surely it's um, yeah. So that was interesting, but but that wasn't offered. That's and so you know, I that is where I feel that we a lot of improvement could be made. I'm not saying I think uh, for a lot of people the conventional therapies are important, but if they are offered in conjunction with, um, you know, a ketogenic diet, why is it important, stress management, I mean, not just lip service, proper kind of, you know, stress management, sleep, exercise, you know, all these things that need to be in place. I think it would make life so much better for these patients who have these kind of advanced, or any patient with cancer, any patient with any illness, really, we know that it helps. But um, I think, um, I think, you know, I think modern medicine, that's, that's the tragedy, I think, that we just pay lip service to these. And uh, most doctors have no idea about the importance of these um, therapies.
1: I, I think, I think you're right. I mean, just yeah, I think you did a very, very good explanation. I mean, people watching on YouTube can probably see I've been trying to share share the screen. Um, I mean the the kind of <laughs> mitochondrial <laughs> kind of <laughs> energy <laughs> is just like it's just a mess. Like it's so complicated. And I don't expect anyone to kind of look at this and go, Oh yeah, I can understand all of that. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah,
1: yeah. I don't know about you, Dr. Nolan, but this is kind of over my head i think i kind of tapped out in medical school with the krebs cycle the tca cycle this is one that yeah, kind of yeah. been that. um but yeah i mean essentially I, you know for people i'll put the, the link in the episode description but it's this um uh, paper by um uh thomas Seafried, yeah um and uh, christos uh i apologize if i've said that name wrong can yes. the metabolic my, mitochondrial metabolic theory explain better the origin and management of cancer than can this somatic mutation theory. So I think as you kind of correctly put there, I mean, it really kind of boils down to what actually really potentially causes cancer. Is it really a genetic condition? Like we, I'm sure you were taught in medical school. I was taught in medical school. You know, it's a genetic condition. There's not really anything you can do about it. Um, and we have to treat the genetics of it. And all these chemotherapy drugs and so on, they're all kind of predicated on, well, it's a genetic disease. Yes. Um, but I think the the work here of, of Dr. Seafried is um is actually kind of based on as you said i mean 100 or so year old uh work by uh, otto warburg uh yeah. warburg sorry um and uh, this kind of uh, i think what he was demonstrating this warburg effect if i recall correctly and i apologize if i'm not uh was essentially um that when you take damaged mitochondria or cancerous mitochondria put them into healthy cells they act like cancer when yes. you put normal mitochondria, so non-cancerous uh, mitochondria from cancerous or into cancerous cells, they don't act like cancer. So it's in effect, the, is it the mitochondria that's actually controlling the cancer as opposed to it's actually the cell in, in, in entirety? Uh, and then of course, they, that kind of led then to, well, what's driving the mitochondria? Well, it's essentially you know energy production. And what they found was um, certainly some, if not many, if not most, if not all um, cancers then might follow this kind of fermentation route, um, which is different to the normal you know, kind of metabolic um, oxidative oh, yeah.
0: Phosphorylation, yeah, that's yeah,
1: right. oxidative yeah. phosphorylation, that's taking me back to medical school days. Um, and uh, which essentially is, is the normal kind of route. So oxidative phosphorylation, yes, you can use glucose as a substrate, you can use glutamine, you know, pyruvate, and ketone bodies, and fatty acids, and you know, all those kind of good stuff. But with the fermentation route, essentially, my understanding is the further you, the, you know, the cancer kind of goes down that route, um, the further, the worse the cancer gets, the more undifferentiated and so on, yes. uh, the more it kind of goes down that fermentative uh, pathway and effectively lacks the ability to then use ketone bodies as a fuel source. Yeah, Therefore, yeah. if you can starve the, the cancer cells of the glucose, uh, which realistically we can't do 100% because the body yes. is producing some glucose, but I mean, pretty close to, we can yeah, get rid of a lot of the glucose. Um, then theoretically, I mean, it's, it's almost the perfect chemotherapy. I mean, theoretically with, with little to no side effects side at all, effects. Um, yeah. if not also, of course, positive. Uh, but yes, it raises the question, well, what really actually then drives all this, this damage to the mitochondria in the first place? And that's yes. When you go back to chemicals, radiation, smoking, uh, you know, and all these other kind of, you know, toxic, toxic things that we put into our bodies nowadays. I did an episode recently, just last week, on breast cancer and oxalates, and wow. uh, I spoke about oxalates at the keto retreat. Um, shout out to Emma from Lazy Keto Mum. Hi Emma, yeah, yeah, you yeah, to the show. Right. Uh, she always puts on a good <laughs> comment. And I know obviously you were missing that because you were over in the states with your brother, and you were you yes. were very nearly missed. Um, but I was talking about oxalates, and you know, and how these these also cause issues, damaging DNA, and you know, and so on. This this chronic stress you know, stay absolutely,
0: um,
1: which can then cause this. We know, of course, chronic stress raises inflammation um, and, you know, acute stress, acute inflammation, it's generally useful within the body. But chronic stress, chronic inflammation, yes, generally bad, generally damaging. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, it's going to lead then to this mitochondrial damage and, you know, and so on. But theoretically, yes, ketogenic diets, and, and as you said, not just low carb, I mean, low carb is probably better than the standard diet, yes, but, but yes. specifically ketogenic diets Yes, Um, in nutritional ketosis. Again, we're not that's, talking 30, yes.
0: 40,
1: 50 grams of sugar. We're talking, are you in nutritional ketosis? Yes. So
0: that's more than, you know, 70, 80% fat in the diet. Typically,
1: um, and it's going to—it's going to be typically, yeah, 20, 30 grams, yeah. maybe, yeah. of carbohydrates, just as a yeah. rough number. Yeah. But again, everyone's going to be slightly different there.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, that's you know potentially then that that kind of sweet spot then for for starving you know the kind of the cells potentially you know as much as possible. But of course, yeah. we know that ketogenic diets have been proven to to reduce stress, uh,
0: yes. lower,
1: lower stress, um, and uh, you know lower inflammation improve brain functioning, you know, and so on. improve so you know, many recovery benefits, and yeah. a lot of a lot of benefits there. So, uh, and and so that's really the theory. There is, yeah, if we can starve the body that well, starve the the cancer cells of their substrate, their energy source. Well, you know, can we then potentially starve out the cancer? It's tricky because they also can use glutamine.
0: Yes, and that so glutamine cannot be. You cannot there's no dietary way that you can control glutamine because glutamine is one of the most abundant amino acids in the body. And it is absolutely essential. Well, it's not an essential amino acid because we produce it in our our bodies. Um, So there are now repurposed drugs that are being trialed um, to try and uh, manage uh, the glutamine. But i mean there's so much potential in these therapies and um Suresh, there's a there's a docu series called uh, Can- cancer evolution um that um uh, all these um kind of scientists and um uh, MDs who in the states they 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 are they produce this and they talk to also a lot of cancer survivors so survivors as in because you can't call them healed but survivors who who have survived for many years longer than you would expect so I I I mean I and the stories are fascinating and. Um, there's one in particular, uh, Pablo Kelly, he's called, he's from Ireland, and he had the glioblast, glioblastoma, glioblastoma multiforme, which is the, the worst possible, the most, um, you know, one of the brain cancers, and he survived eight years now, um, refusing all conventional therapy and just going down the metabolic pathway. I'm not saying that that necessarily has to happen for everybody, but um, but there are so many stories now, uh, N of ones coming up and survival stories coming up that I don't think that we can just say, well, oh, well, this is, you know, who, whatever. Because at the end of the day, when you're talking about stage four cancers that have a very low survival rate, anybody who survives, we need to look at, well, what, what did they do?
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I, I mean, again, let make it clear. I know you've already said it, but we're not telling anyone to stop, you know, no, traditional no. therapies, uh, you know, conventional therapies, chemotherapy, anything like that. No, but a ketogenic diet can be done with all of that, yeah. just in in the background. I mean, I'm sure you've got some some patients with cancer, unfortunately, as well. And you know, they yeah. they often tell me doing a ketogenic diet helped them at least with their chemotherapy they felt they just recovered quicker, more energy, less stressed. Their body just kind of seems to just, just do better when they were following that, that ketogenic diet. I also want to to very, very quickly. If I can share this screen, hopefully that works. There we go. Oh, uh, yes. Again, I apologize anyone that's listening on the podcast, you can't see this again. I'll put links there, but this is the um, paleo medicina uh, website. And I find, again, I am apologize if I'm wrong. I think these guys are in Hungary. If I, I'm correct. Oh, there we go. Yeah, hungry. I got it right. <laughs> okay. um, and uh, Dr. Zofia Clemens, uh, a lot of people will, will know her and the work of her team. And they're doing amazing work with what they're calling this paleolithic ketogenic diet, uh, which is essentially yeah, a modified ketogenic diet somewhere in between, you know, kind of a maybe a slightly more relaxed, relaxed carnivore. So it's a very specific diet that they've kind of come up with. Um but yeah, seemingly they're getting amazing results. I think wow. is it John Hopkins in the states, I think is now trialing or has been trialling ketogenic diets as a as a add- on you know, add-on therapy for for cancer as well. Um, so I think your word kind of is is getting out there a little bit that that maybe there's other ways of 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 approaching uh, you know these things. and uh, and I think I think there is hope.
0: And for people as well, I think, it just um, gives them a sense of control if they are given these lifestyle therapies because they actually can do something about their own illness. Um, they can, you know, rather than just have the medication or going for radiation or whatever, they also can, there's so much that they can do to improve their likelihood of survival. So I think it's really important to empower people, I think, to give them, you know, give them that option you know yep. yeah yeah and,
1: and that, that's incredibly powerful when people can actually feel empowered to do something for themselves and this is why i think people seek out alternative therapies and you know exactly. do all sorts of things which again we're not necessarily recommending now but yeah because they just they want to feel like they can just be part yeah. of their own journey exactly. <laughs> and not just have things yeah. you know kind of done to them so um so i, I think yeah ketogenic diet potentially has a has a huge role here this this mitochondrial metabolic theory i think is is definitely very interesting Um, i get a number of patients i don't know if you do as well you know seeking me out wanting to just yeah do this um just because they they're either they've tried everything they've been told no more treatment or they just want to do it alongside it um and it's kind of sad that you know they're, they're maybe their usual doctors just telling them no it's gonna harm you it's not good for you when there's absolutely no evidence that that's the case whatsoever, no. Um, no. even if it doesn't improve things, okay, that's one thing. But there's no evidence of harm, really, no. from at least short-term ketogenic diets. You know, it's very, very well studied. And uh, if there is any potential, you know, long-term, maybe a very slight stress effect in the long term, um, it probably pales in comparison to the potential, you know, the potential benefits. benefits yeah, it. So,
0: exactly.
1: Yeah, so I think um, there's not really any evidence of harm. I think I don't see why more people shouldn't be necessarily at least looking into it yeah. uh, and then, of course, making making their own decisions there.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yes.
1: Yeah, so... so um, but, um, yeah, look, I mean, was there anything else that you wanted to discuss at all this evening? Uh, no, I
0: think, I, I think that was really, I think, just to say that I think we need to, you know, when people get these um, very kind of serious and scary diagnoses, they do they're scared and they are just wanting whatever you know something to help them but I and I think it's such a pity that we don't offer in conjunction hand in hand or as important to first you know let's do these, 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 these lifestyle therapies and let's do this as well. And I think that I think would be the ideal way to treat people and give them a sense of control, give them the ability to make their own decisions on what they need to do. And also that I think also reduces the, the dosages and the frequency of these strong, you know, Toxic medications because they are toxic. I mean, your Mm. hair falls out with radiation. You can have, you know, sometimes a little bit of neurological side effects as well. So these are not things that you know. And as as with my brother, I mean, it it obviously that's what he died of. At the end of the day, you know, months or possibly years before he would have died from his cancer. Um, So I think you know these are not without risks. And I think it's really good to have an alternative, uh, not an alternative, but an um, uh, adjunctive uh, treatments that can be used in conjunction with conventional therapies. And I think we need to all be thinking about not just for cancer, but all any illness that we treat, that we're not just... I really feel that sometimes a lot of us pay lip service to these lifestyle therapies and we really need to know for ourselves what to tell patients so that they can benefit from these
1: yeah no i absolutely 100 agree um I realised I think uh just at the start of the uh the podcast, I didn't really introduce you terribly well because you're just you're a, you're a turning guest on the show and people may not actually know if they haven't listened to those previous episodes. Maybe you can just before you leave tell us a little bit about whole food revolution and what's happening with that at the moment.
0: Oh, okay. So I'm. I'm. I, so um, I'm a GP. Um, I work in the in north of Brisbane, and I'm the founder of Whole Food Revolution, which is basically a platform um, that educates people um, on metabolic health, on um, you know not just um, the diet but the the complete you know lifestyle. So. And so I work with two other women. I work with a nurse and a life coach. So uh, I feel that we have a holistic approach um, to this. So I teach the science. Deb talks about the practical implementation of that. Thank you, Suresh. And Ronit is the life coach and she's all about the mind. So, um, yeah, so that's what, uh, that's what we do. And we run, uh, you know, we, we run various uh, workshops and um, yeah, we we yeah, so that's what we do. So it's it's all about education, and um, and we really enjoy that, and we have a good time doing it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've I've heard you talk, I've heard Deb talk, I've heard Ronit talk, and you guys are all fantastic, and you know, you really you really know your stuff in your respective areas, and, and very very highly respected. Um, so anyone, yeah, north side of Brisbane, uh, definitely go go check out Dr. Neilam and Whole Food Revolution um thank well thank you oh you're very welcome thank you again dr neiland for coming on the show and sharing your truly heartfelt heartbreaking story uh with myself with with the listeners with the viewers um i think there's going to be people out there that will be um able to identify i think with what you've said uh, sadly um and uh, hopefully i just think yeah maybe there's i think in your hope was maybe there's just some doctors that Health clinicians that just listen to this and maybe just think, okay, let's let's read this paper. Let's just talk about it. And even if you know they don't know what they're doing with low carb or ketogenic diets, you know, look, just say, look, this might be an option. Go yeah. see your doctor. Go see this person. Go see Doctor Nilam. Go, go see myself, um, and just talk to someone who who maybe does um, yeah. that. They can just talk you through it.
0: That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah absolutely i think that's that i mean that's that's a really good start if if that if we can get people to do that then i think that at least uh, the mind is has been opened a little bit
1: absolutely and i think that's really just the goal here is just get people thinking about it talking about it and just realizing maybe that there's there's just there's a maybe a different way or an additional way
0: yeah additional way yeah i think that's it yeah yeah, yeah
1: that's right thank you very much uh dr nilam again for coming on the show really do appreciate it and uh thank you guys for tuning in to this episode of the meek medic podcast we'll see you guys in the next episode